Hi, this is Terry Draper, formerly of Clatu, and we're listening together to Talkin' Blues. So, Terry, you have your own studio. I do. How long have you had that studio? Uh, I've had a, uh, um, the ability to record myself since uh, about 1970, 71. I bought my first tape recorder. And, uh, you know, and then the next thing you do is you get a mixer. You have a microphone, hopefully, and an electric guitar and, and uh, an acoustic guitar. And then I bought a piano one day and learned to play that. And, uh, and, and then, you know, then you buy a compressor and then you get another piece of gear. And, oh, boy, here's a delay line. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it just by osmosis, I've turned into an engineer somehow. Um, it's quite surprising, actually. And, and was the idea always to record your own material for demo purposes, or was it to produce final product albums or final album product? Well, I guess it starts as a, um, as a demo. I mean, of, while you're making those demos, you're looking further down the trail at being in a band and having gold records etc etc but you got to start somewhere you know and so you start off making demos of poorly written songs and uh, and everything just comes together even today when i'm recording i start with an idea for a song and then i start recording it and uh, you know and then i record the drums and then the bass and then i'll do something else and that makes the bass and the drums have to change a little bit to go over here so the whole thing is is uh, in motion it's in flux all the time until it's finished and i know a lot of people who never seem to get finished and i think that's a real problem uh, you know when i put these albums out they're like miles stones it's like okay here's where i'm at in 19 2014 and uh there you go sorry you know i'm not going to apologize but it is what it is and i move on uh and those those songs become orphans uh, i have albums that i've done that i haven't listened to since i recorded them because i i spent you know hundreds of hours thousands of hours on the album looking at each uh, bit each uh, each part, each song with a microscope. And now I want to throw the microscope away and just put it out there. I'm done with it. It's over. It's an orphan. You know, they, some people say uh, you got to look at the big picture. Yeah. And I, I believe the exact opposite. It's all about the details. If you're, if you're f finesse the details, the big picture will take care of itself. So it, you, you mentioned before um, about hoping to have a gold record or whatever at this point in your life what is the what is the objective what is the goal you want to achieve with the recording because you've been recording a lot and then you've also and it seems like you've been producing an album a year for the last 10 years or so yeah uh, that's that's correct material. it is it, it is uh, starting to pile up um <laughs> <laughs> somebody asked me recently uh that very question what do you hope to achieve and uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not really trying to achieve anything. I, I make music because I have to. It's right. my passion. I love doing it. I, I get an idea. I watch a TV show. Recently, I watched one on Netflix about the fall of Constantinople, and I wrote this song called The Sultan's Dream using the idioms and the modality of that Middle Eastern music. 
And I had such fun putting it all together and singing, well, Constantinople is the sultan's dream. It's Istanbul. Right. And I got, the, I got the army singing and everybody marching and the drums. And I'm having a ball doing this. So it just keeps on happening and I keep on doing it. And, and I'm not trying to take over the world or get gold records. In fact, uh, my basic philosophy is quite simple. Um, I, I make music. If you like what I do, that's great. If you don't, go fuck yourself. <laughs> that is rather simple. Well, yeah, and, and it's actually true. I don't care about sales. I don't care about whether you like it or not. I'm going to do different kinds of things, everything from uh, sickly sweet ballads to uh, all sorts of off-the-wall kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not really concerned about who likes it and who doesn't. I don't have a record label to, to tell me what to do, nobody looking over my shoulder. I'm just being creative and having fun. And, and before this whole pandemic thing happened, were you play, doing a lot of live gigs? No, absolutely not. Um, the one thing I never do anymore is live. The, I, I've done a few, in, well, years ago, but five or six years ago, I got coerced into playing live a couple of times. I put a little band together called Terry Draper and the Prime Radiant, and uh, there was five or six of us, and we learned a bunch of my songs, just like a half an hour set. It was actually for a, uh, a benefit for a friend in crisis, and, uh, and it was a, an unrewarding experience. There wasn't enough auto-tune on my voice in the monitors. There wasn't, uh, everybody hadn't learned their parts fully, so there was mistakes being made and wrong notes being played. The only highlight I can say about the whole thing is that um, my youngest son was the drummer, and he's a much better drummer than I ever was. That's the <laughs> instrument I started out on. And uh, we're playing Calling Occupants, and I look over my shoulder, and he's playing the big drum fill that takes us home. And right. that put a smile on my face, I got to tell you. <laughs> but the live experience doesn't really interest you anymore. No, no, I, I won't do it anymore. I'm just, you know, I'm not that good a musician. I can't play any instrument really proficiently except the drums. But I hear it all in my head. And with the use of, of uh, programs like uh, Logic 9, the one I use, and Pro Tools and stuff like that, I have a symphony at my fingertips. And I can do the string quartet. I certainly can't play violin. I can't even hold it without getting a hernia in my arm, you know. And right. it's, and so, but with this technology, I, I, I've got the T Toronto Symphony Orchestra sitting in my studio with me. So I can do anything I want and, and put it across because I hear it in my head. But when I go to play live, I mean, I'm just not that great a piano player and I'm not that great a singer. I've just been recording and working with this technology for so long that um, I can manipulate it. And uh, it's what I call FTA, fool them again. <laughs> um, if we go back, I mean, obviously that wasn't always the case. I presume when you first started, live was more of a big thing for you. Oh, well, when I was a kid, yeah, that there was no recording. Um, my first band was in 1965 with my good friend Virgil Scott. Back then he was Jimmy Pitkin, so we were JP and the Five Good Reasons. 
And then that osmosed into a band called the Tracks, T-R-A-X, that played all animal songs. And then the Innocents of Virgil Scott and the Kingdom Show Band and, and then a bunch of horrific uh, bar bands just to make ends meet and, and have money coming in. But I also had a van back in the 60s so that because being a drummer, I needed to drag my crap around. And so between bands and for extra money, I would drive other bands around. Oh. Some friend, from friends of mine played with uh, Gil Moore in the Abernathy Shagnaster Wash and Wear Band. <laughs> and, and I used to drive them around from time to time. And Gil Moore went on to play with Triumph. He did indeed. Um, so at that point, what, we, what would your goals have been back then, musically? Well, trying trying to uh, get get better at, at playing that instrument that you've uh, elected, and uh, and getting the gigs and, and and meeting girls at the high school dance on Friday night. Right. There you know there wasn't uh, we we were kids you know I was like sixteen seventeen playing in a band and and of course the goal was once nineteen sixty nine rolled around and I began listening to King Crimson and Pink Floyd and. And Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I got really caught up in the whole prog rock thing. It's still one of my favorite genres, and I, I dally in that mode from time to time still. And so now it's become, uh, uh, you know, it's all about now making records and uh, you know, the convoluted arrangements and, and stuff like that. And so, uh, and that's when I started recording and writing and, and, trying to take it a step further here's an interesting no, uh, anecdote Marco I'm uh, living in Yorkville in 69 and this fellow where I buy my clothes for playing in bands stage clothes and whatnot, has uh, recently emigrated from England and he said to me there's two bands you need to keep an eye out for if you see their records or they're playing around check it out he said one is called Jethro Tull and the other one is called Led Zeppelin so um, I thought, hmm, Led Zeppelin, that ain't going to fly. But um bum But, yeah, I, I did think that. But, yeah. But anyway, a few weeks later, I'm strolling down the avenue, and there's the marquee on the telephone pole this Sunday night at the Rock Pile, Led Zeppelin, $3. So uh, nobody wanted to go with me, so I went alone. And uh, it, it was a, an epiphany that, uh, that night. Uh, I, uh, I quit playing drums in the band. I quit the band, quit playing the drums, piled them in a corner, and I borrowed uh, uh, an acoustic guitar from a friend, an old Kent 12-string that only had six strings, luckily. It was hard enough to tune six, never mind 12. And uh, a Beatles songbook. I could read music because I played trombone in high school. And the, there was little pictures of where to put your fingers on the guitar. So I taught myself to play guitar and put the drums aside. And, and uh, oddly enough, I just witnessed the best drummer that ever lived. And I decided I want to learn how to write music, and and I want to, you know, that that tingle you get up your spine when somebody does something really fabulous in music. Right. I wanted to be able to do that, and I had to understand how to make that happen to other people. Tell me about prog rock. Um, tell me your definition of prog rock, because it's it's a it's a genre of music that I'm very interested in. I find it kind of fascinating that. Most of it, or a lot of the bands that I love, come from England or Europe. There seems to be fewer North American prog rock, rock artists who, who 
I guess, are well known. I, I'm sure there's a lot of them out there. But tell me about your definition of prog rock and why why it, it, it attracted you. Well, f for me, uh, um, prog rock is, is very symphonic. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very orchestrated. And I don't just mean they use an orchestra, but it's orchestrated. It's like, it's like a seven-course dinner. And, and while I'm playing this... Uh, you play that, and you over there, you play this, and and we mesh it all together, and it becomes this orchestrated, seamless event, uh, and that's from European music, and, and you know, from Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart and, and all of that kind of thing, that very complex but integrated music, as opposed to how I describe American music, or let me say North American music, as as fast food. Right. It's uh, it's more like oh you you got drums uh, you got a guitar I got a bass okay one two three and away we go, and we're just gonna you know we're gonna jam our hearts out and uh, lay it down like Bruce Springsteen or whoever you wanna choose, and it's a totally different mindset than something that yes would put together or Emerson Lake and Palmer. Right. I recently saw Carl Palmer. I don't go to concerts anymore because I, I, I've seen all the big boys back in the day. But I, I, somebody coerced me into going to see Carl Palmer at the Phoenix three or four years ago. And uh, it, it, was, it was Carl Palmer plays the music of Emerson Lake of Palmer. Mm -hmm. And there, there he is front and center with his giant drum kit. And then he has these two young kids playing with him, a bassist and a guitarist. No keyboardist. And the three of them play all of side one of Tarkus uh, without a keyboard. It was it was uncanny, wow. and, and and it was and it was fabulous. And the odd thing was, I hadn't listened to that album in thirty odd years, and I knew every twist and turn, every every uh, retard, every every corner of it. I just yeah, I was tapping my foot the whole time, just grooving on this. This, this memory and this moment. And, and the best part was that um, between songs, Carl got up and walked out front to the microphone and set up the next song with a, an, a, a comical, interesting anecdote. And it was, it, he was very charming. And, and uh, it, was, it was an amazing evening. And it was 10 bucks. My goodness. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> 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 okay, so when I think of progressive rock or progressive, yeah, progressive rock, um, I think the musicianship is always pretty high up there in terms of rock musicians. You you decide that you want to pursue that, and you pick up the guitar. You you give up the drums. How good of a guitar player are you, or did you become? And how easy was that transition? Uh, no, I, I never made the grade, unfortunately. I'm, I, I got taught myself to play chords, and I can play any chord you can think of on the guitar, but I can't play like lead guitar and solo and stuff. I, I'm, so I don't think of myself as a musician. I, I think m myself more as a, a poet who, who, in order to have his, his poetry heard, has to set it to music. And in order to do that, I have to understand how music works. I don't have to be able to play a drum solo or, or an electric guitar solo. I don't need to be Eric Clapton uh, to, to write songs and put them across. And so that's been my goal. And once I'd sort of play, got to playing the guitar, I bought a piano. 
and and taught myself to play the piano. And to this day, I, I play the piano every day. I, I haven't picked up a guitar in probably a year. I just don't play it much anymore. It's not about the instruments. They're they're just a, uh, what do you call it? a tool? They're just right. a tool for me to to get across what I'm doing. You know, if I'd have been born ten or fifteen years earlier, I probably would have been wearing a beret and reciting poetry in a coffee shop somewhere in in Greenwich Village in the early sixties. That's what I think sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> did you think? Did you do any writing before then? Songwriting before then? No, no, uh, not until I learned to play an instrument. It seemed uh, unachievable. I mean, right. the, the, the drums is a lot of fun to play, not so much alone, but when you're playing with other people, um, you live and die by the drummer, every band, every night. I remember uh, back in the 70s, in the heyday of the Klaatu era, uh, D and I put a band together because we Klaatu didn't play live, so we're just in the studio all the time and had a lot of time on our hands, extra time. And so uh, him and I put together a band called Fun, F-U-N-N, that played only covers, no original, and we did all psychedelic 60s. So we are doing the full-length Inagata de Vida and Born to be Wild and Green Tambourine by the Lemon Pipers and Paul Revere and the Raider, all this great music that we had grown up on some turtles and bits of this and that we had a great deal of fun fun yeah yeah and anyway uh what i noticed during that event was that uh if if we had a every night we played if everybody was making mistakes and i was in the groove we rocked the house every night but if i was having an off night and not sitting in the pocket and everybody else played spot on it just didn't go over and there's something about that, that, uh, that uh, the drummer, you live and die by his performance every night because he's the rock that you have to uh, revolve around, just like the moon and the earth. What made you pick up the drums again when you decided at one point to put them down? Well, I never really put them down. I mean, I, I played in bands from time to time while throughout the late 60s and early 70s while I was learning to play other instruments the only way i could get into a band was to play the drums because i could uh you know i got pretty much to the place where i could play anything ringo could and that's pretty much good enough to play in in most bands and stuff for sure and then then we formed clatu the pre- precursor to clatu was a band called mud cow that was trying to do prog rock and and stuff like that and uh it was all originals and uh, we we couldn't get any work. We got a couple of gigs here and there, but it was very difficult playing all original music. And it was uh, complicated, complex arrangements of these original songs. And was music like, were you hoping to make it and get a record deal? Was that the goal? Or was it to play to play live and make a living that way? Or was it neither? It was, it was all about making records. Um, uh... uh that was the goal. I mean, right. playing live was a means to an end and uh, just to have income so that you could stay home and, and, uh, and work on the music. So when you joined Klaatu, and I know that the two guys were in the band before you or they had a record deal before you, and I don't think it was Klaatu at that point, but when you joined the band, it, they didn't tour. How did you feel about that? I was thrilled. 
Because live is, uh, is uh, first of all, if you're on the road, that is no fun at all. You know, going from hotel room to hotel room, doing a three o'clock sound check, and then hanging around till nine o'clock in a hotel room, and then getting on the bus and going to the uh, the next town. Um, I, I really didn't like doing that. Clatu uh, eventually did that on after the release of our fifth album. Part of the deal was that we would go out and tour that record. And although, you know, th- it was fun. I mean, you know, 5,000 people uh, coming to see you play is not to be scoffed at. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's a whole lot of hurry up and wait, you know? Right. But But I wonder, like, back in those days, and I guess in some ways maybe more so today, but in the 70s, it, you know, you, you got, oh, I got the impression that you had to play live. It was um, very few bands had record deals and didn't go out and support the, the albums, like, I guess, Steely Dan, after their first album, they didn't tour much. Um, so what was the thinking behind Clatu to say, we're not going to do live? Is it just that you guys didn't like doing live and you just thought we're a studio band? Or what was the thinking behind that? Or how did that happen again? The whole playing live thing, um, w- we wanted to avoid it. Uh, during the making of the first Clatu album, all three of us had regular jobs. In fact, I was the head of the 45 department at the flagship store of Sam the Record Man at Young and Dundas. That wow. was my day gig. Yeah, and I think $73 a week, as I recall. How many albums did you get from them? <laughs> uh, I, I would spend my lunch hour... Uh, diving through the, in the uh, rooting around in the basement, they, um, the, some of the gems I found. Oh my goodness! I still have a copy of uh, the, the cheerful insanity of Giles, Giles and Fripp, that is uh, one of the the uh, jewels of my collection. Wow! So um, yeah, we all had jobs during this time, and uh, we didn't want to play live. Um, first of all, there's only three of us. We couldn't. Uh, emulate that sound we'd need an orchestra to do it and in fact uh, uh, we went on to hire the London Philharmonic Orchestra and record them at Olympic Sound in England London England uh, for the Hope album there was an 83 piece orchestra overdubbing to the bed tracks we had done back home at Toronto Sound with Terry Brown and uh, I mean, it's just it was impossible to recreate that music without an orchestra the the uh, the synthesizer at that point in time was still monophonic. You could only play one note at a time. Polyphony hadn't been invented. The first one was the Polymog, I think, in 1977, and we bought one instantly so that we could, uh, you know, do this, these complex arrangements and, and not have to multi-track uh, a dozen times to get a horn section happening. And so it was just a different time, and, and plus we were tired of it. Uh, I mean, the last gig that Mudcow did, and Mudcow was the precursor to Klaatu, John, D and myself, and another fellow, our very last gig was at the Trenton Hotel uh, in Trenton, of course. And back then you played six nights a week and a Saturday afternoon matinee, and the last straw for this band was uh, Misty the Stripper had called a meeting to uh, go over our set list with us and select the songs that she would undress to. (laughs) I kid you not. And that, you know, after that, it was just like, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. It was 1972, maybe. And uh, enough with this playing the bars already. I mean, it's enough. 
And so it stopped. And then John got a job working with Terry Brown at Toronto Sound Studio and showed him some demos and called D in. And they did a couple of songs and then realized that they, they could get further with a, a, a drummer in the band. So I got the call and uh, off we went. What did the record company? Did they have any issue with you not touring? Like, did you say, okay, so they they signed you to a record label, uh, to a deal, and I don't know what what the deal was, but um, when when you said, well, we're not going to tour behind these albums, they were totally fine with that. Well, they had no choice um, because what uh, most bands get signed to a record deal, and the record the, the the record company pays for your studio time and arranges the limousines and all that stuff. And uh, when we went to Capitol Records, um, we were signed with Frank Davies at Daffodil Records. And uh, Frank went to market it. Uh, he went to L.A. And, uh, and gave them the record. It was a finished album, finished artwork, no names, no pictures, no touring, no interviews. Okay, Take what, it, was, what was the th- thinking behind that? Why no pictures, no names? What? Whose decision was that? What was the thinking behind that? It was mostly John's impetus to do that. And one of the things that we noticed was at at the recording studio we were at, uh, Rush and Max Webster came through there and and, uh, other bands as well, of course. But um, we could see, you could see that, you know, uh, Getty and Alex couldn't go to the grocery store without having to sign autographs and stuff like that. And I guess that's okay when you're 17, but when you're 25... (laughs) Uh, it, it, there's more to it, you know, and we wanted to be fabulously wealthy making music, but still have private lives. And so we elected to do this anonymity thing and, uh, and not as a, uh, as a trick or anything. Uh, our byline at the day was, was let the music speak for itself. And we were, this, this was 1975, 76. We're in the height of the disco era where the, the music is, is less substantial than the image of the artist and the flash and, and the wind blowing your hair and your scarfs and all that stuff. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a hard time to be making sophisticated, pseudo-psychedelic progressive rock. Right. And uh, so this was uh, one of the way, ways that we reacted to it. said, no, no pictures. If you don't like the music, move on. If you like the music, it doesn't matter who made it. Interesting. And so that was our thinking. And I, I think I, I sort of t- touched on that at the beginning of our conversation, Marco, that, that uh, I, I just do what I want to do, and I'm not, I don't care what other people think, you know? Right. I'm just going about making music, and I don't, nobody lords it over me. So Capitol uh, in the U.S., Rupert Perry was the president at the time. He took the album on. And then uh, shortly after that, about six months after its release, there was this rumor that we were the Beatles recording under a new name. And when Rupert Perry had to field these uh, hundreds of calls a day, I'm told, he actually had to say on the phone, no, I'm sorry, I don't know who's in the band. (laughs) (laughs) He did not know who, we'd never met him, he had no pictures, he did not know our names. So how did you feel about that? About that rumor that maybe this could be the Beatles and like how did you guys personally feel about that going out there? Well, I mean, um 
when we were apprised of of this rumor, it was an article written in the Providence, Rhode Island Journal in February, I think, of 77. We were actually in England recording the London Symphony Orchestra for our Hope album, which was, you know, coming together and about half done. So we were immersed in uh, the most important project of my life, uh, which was a concept album. I had always wanted to do a concept album since the moment I heard Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, and and uh, Birdman by McDonald and Giles, and, and uh, Tarkas, all these great records. Right. Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. So this was a, a personal goal of mine, and I think John's too, D not so much. And uh, Moody Blues, how could I forget the Moody Blues? All those great concept albums, one of my go-tos, my, one of my favorite bands. And so here we are in the midst of this, and somebody comes and says, hey, there's this article. Everybody thinks you're the Beatles because of that first album and Sub Rosa Subway. And, and we sort of looked around and said, oh, isn't that nice? And then we got back to work. And then we came home and, and from England, and it was like uh, the shit had really hit the fan. Um, there was, you know, we were selling 20,000 albums a day in the U.S. Capital had closed every... F- recording factory every a record making factory in the country to make the first Clatu album wow and because it was selling like hotcakes and and so we had a we had no management there was john and d and i against the world and we had a meeting amongst ourselves and said what are we going to do here here we are hiding in this little womb and uh, the, this rumor is flying around the world, and, and we came out, we started this whole thing to keep our anonymity and have private lives, and now they're banging on the door wanting to know who we are, and, and we decided to stick by our guns. And, of course, Capitol Records came out and took a one-page ad out in Billboard that said, Clatu is Clatu. Throw some more gas on the fire, boys. <laughs> and uh, and it, it so we we just hid, and we 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 didn't know how to handle it. To be honest, I think what we should have done was put a band together and hire the best musicians on the planet, tour the world, and uh, everybody would have been fine with it. But no, we hid, and then uh, um, uh, a DJ in Washington, he went to the Library of Congress, and looked at the copyrights of the songs on the. Uh, uh, on the first Clatu album, and there was no Lennon and McCartney to be seen anywhere. It was uh, three unknowns from Toronto. How very embarrassing for the world. And so we were found out, and uh, it, it was a Damocles sword. I mean, it, people listened to us because of the rumor, but the rumor killed us. Each album, we did five. Each album sold successively less than its predecessor, until after the fifth album, uh, and five years after the Beatle rumor, a short five years after this Beatle rumor, we weren't good enough to get a gig or a record deal, and we threw in the towel and called it a day, which was okay. Which was, you know, it wasn't that we got our private lives. The anonymity thing worked really well. Nobody knows who we are, and and so uh, I quit the music business because it had turned its back on me and I was not about to join another band and play uh, six nights a week at the Holiday Inn. So um, I started my roofing company up. I had a roofing company during my adolescence and through the Clatu album years in order to have a living because playing in band, uh, making records wasn't doing it. 
So even and, even with a with a a band like Clatu where you sold a lot of records. Well, we never saw any of the money. Did you did you have publishing or not? Well, in the, we had co-publishing and then we ended up with all the publishing and that is has uh, been a saving grace indeed. And we own the masters for Canada too, so that's kind of nice. But um, God bless Karen Carpenter and and, the, and Richard for for doing Calling Occupants uh, because it's been quite successful and uh, there is still some revenue being earned, which is quite nice. Do you know how that happened? Uh, uh, the story is that um, their guitar player found our record and brought it into them. And uh, they're, uh, they're big Beatle fans to start with. I think uh, one of Richard's famous quotes is the three Bs, right. the Beatles, Bacharach, and the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so um, when he played it for them, uh, I guess uh, Frank Davies met with the Carpenters um, shortly after they'd recorded the song at uh, a NAM convention in Vegas or something and spent the evening with them. And he said they sat there and sang every song on our album to him. Wow. Which, which was pretty cool. And then uh, Karen sent with Frank, she sent home three acetates, which is um, a soft cut, a record in a white a generic sleeve, cardboard sleeve, one for each of us. And she'd written on it, uh, two clatu, We've been observing your group. <laughs> That's amazing. I have it framed hanging in the studio here. <laughs> so when you go through something like that, um, and this is now working at a, at a level where you're working with major record companies, m major money is being poured into recording your stuff and promoting your stuff. What do you get out of that whole experience? How do you view the music industry? Uh, not very kindly, to be honest. Um, it it chews you up and spits you out. Um, and and uh, today, I can't imagine being a, a young man and wanting to be part of the music business. I guess I probably would because it's in my DNA. But it would be a uh, it would be a tough go. I mean, without playing live, you have no hope in hell. And Spotify has ruined any income you might get mm -hmm. um, f from record sales. I mean, there are no more record sales. People just don't buy music. Ever since Napster, the the youth of the day has thought that music was free. Right. And so how do you make a living? The only way to make a living is play live. And uh, the pandemic has sort of uh, cornered that market. Does it surprise you how much interest? I know that more than one group of people have approached you guys about doing a documentary about you guys. Um, the fact that I'm even asking you about Klaatu 40-some years after the fact, does that surprise you? Actually, it doesn't, you know. It really doesn't because um, uh, notwithstanding the the, uh, the rumor and the fact that the, the world, uh, and most specifically the media, thought we had duped them and, and pulled a prank. Uh, we hadn't. This is not Millie Vanilli. We were as much a victim of the prank as the, the public at large, uh, a victim of the rumor. It's not a prank, I guess. But, so, but I know what we accomplished. Mm -hmm. And when, when people listen to Calling Occupants and some of those other songs on our first album, 
and uh, and uh, even later stuff that we did. Uh, there's a level of uh, quality about it and a level of timelessness, not unlike Beatle music. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's there's a world of difference from "Shake Your Booty" by Casey and the Sunshine Band, which will st- stand only as a, a, a moment in time. Uh, and then the other thing we should mention is that you guys have been inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, we were, yeah, last November. That was yeah. a that was a, a very fun evening. So I mean, that speaks. That's a like a huge accomplishment. I, I, yeah, I suppose it is. I suppose it is. I haven't thought about it so much. I think about. I have a few gold records from Clatu on the wall, and 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 uh, and I look at them, and it's like. Yeah, yeah, those were good records. Terry Brown was instrumental in that. Tell me about that connection. He was uh, um, uh, the most prolific engineer in the day mm-hmm. in Canada. And uh, I remember him going out and buying... Uh, once a month, he would go to a record store and pick up all the latest albums, like a half a dozen of them. And not to listen to the music, but to listen to the technology. And... Uh, he, he would he run out and get a, an eventide delay line or the harmonizer the day it was available. So he, he had state-of-the-art recording quality uh, equipment and wanted to, to be that good and, and, and compete. You, you know, you can't put on your record, geez, uh, I'm sorry that Yellow Brick Road by Elton John sounds so much better. We couldn't afford the gear. You can't put that disclaimer on your album. Right. You have to com- you have to compete with him, like it or not. And so, kudos to Terry for for staying on the cutting edge. What does that song mean to you now? Uh, um, well, the 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 the, uh, the the revenue continues, and that's quite nice. Um, uh, geez, you know, it was something that uh, we wrote in 1975. John and I wrote it together. And that's uh, that's 45 years ago, so it's it's kind of like you know it's just this thing that's over there, you know. I barely remember us uh, sitting down and writing it. I remember recording it because it took three days to get a, a drum sound that Terry Brown was satisfied with. <laughs> okay. yeah, I, kid, I I kid you not. Okay, so what and, what is that like? So are you are you just kind of pounding on the snare until he says, "Yeah, I think we got it," or what? How? I, I, Absolutely. Thump, thump, thump. Okay, give me some more kick. Thump, thump. Oh, my God. Okay, tighten the head a little. Thump, thump, thump. Three days of this. And as and a, as a fi- drummer, are you agreeing with that search for this perfect sound, or how do you feel about that? Uh, I, I, I'm out there playing it. I can't really hear, and even with headphones on, I can't hear what they're hearing. Right, and so it's uh, yeah. I mean, t- Terry, uh, we were happy to do his bidding because we were new, and if he wanted to spend this much time getting it together, I mean, let's go for it. And then we finally did the bed track, and it was uh, John played the piano, I played the drums, and Dee played the mellotron. It was an odd assortment for for uh, a bed track, but uh, it turned out to be great. You know, here's another interesting thing uh, about making those records. People have asked me many times how we made those records. And the one thing I, I, I remember most is that uh, because we recorded one person at a time often, there's very few songs like Calling Occupants where we played together live off the floor. 
Right. Most of it was done a man at a time. And what would happen is that the, the, the people in the control room, let's say D's out there playing guitar, and it's me and John and Terry Brown in the control room, and D's playing these riffs, and it's like, hey, D, that, that last riff was great, but if you play it again, but end on the minor third, and it'll set up the next lyric better. Okay, run it. So he would do that. So what what effect was happening is that we made the music with our ears, not with our hands. The, the people without the instrument had more control than the person who was actually playing the instrument. Right. And and we were making the music not uh, that we wanted to hear, not the music we wanted to play. I, I wonder how much um, your your current productions, the stuff that you do in your studio now, has been influenced by your work with Terry Brown. Uh, a great deal. A great deal. Um, I, I, you know, I, I try. I strive for perfection. I don't belabor the point, though. I mean, I get it to a certain point, and it's. I've lived with this song for six months, and I've, uh, you know, been overdubbing and playing with it and remixing it for hundreds of hours. Um, you know, this is uh, this is good. I could spend another couple of months and add two or three percent, perhaps. But let's let's move on to another song. Right. And so that's generally what happens. But I, I, like I said earlier, I use the microscope and then throw it away. So when you're driving down this, the highway or the the road, and all of a sudden your song comes on the radio, what what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, gee, that doesn't happen. <laughs> really? Well, I don't listen to the radio for one <laughs> <Okay>. thing, <laughs> and they rarely play our music anyway. Uh, I, I um. Boom 97 was playing Calling Them Occupants for a while, I think, back when they first started. And I haven't heard it. But like I said, I don't listen to the radio. I don't even listen to records anymore or anybody else's music. I'm just in this room most of the time uh, sorting out the stuff that's going through my head. And I don't have time to be of the interference, you know, the... the um, the interference from from other people's music and ideas. I, I'm I keep thinking that you know one day I'm going to uh, slow down a little bit and spend a lot less time recording, and I'll go back and listen to "In Search of the Lost Chord," uh, possibly on acid with headphones. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Those days are over. <laughs> um, and so after the fifth album, and you, you you decide somehow that you guys have to go on the road and do this, what was that like? Well, that was okay, actually. And, because, and um, had technology caught up by then that you could actually execute some of these songs live? Yeah, it had, actually. And uh, we ended up putting a six-piece band together. And uh, I took it upon myself to try to get this happening because we've been told it was part of the deal. So as luck would have it, some friends of mine were in a band called Max Webster, mm -hmm. and they had just broken up. So I grabbed uh, uh, Mike Gingrich, the bass player, and uh, Stixie, Gary McCracken, the drummer, and another fellow who used to play with Gingrich in a band called Nightwinds, Gerald O'Brien, 
So I hired the three of them to back us up. So we had a little rhythm section behind us, and John and Dee and myself were out front with an assortment of keyboards and guitars and doing all the vocals and uh, all the, you know, the and I was doing a lot of the incidental stuff, trumpets and stuff like that that's an integral part of it, but hard to do. So a six-piece band with a four-piece road crew, yeah, the ten of us hit the road. And what was that like for you? It, it was okay. I mean, it was it was great fun to play, and uh, audiences um, were appreciative. And uh, but you know, after the first couple of tours um, across Canada, it became, you know, playing the local bars, and on a Friday or Saturday night, and selling out 500, 500 people at five dollars a piece, we get the twenty five hundred dollars. And uh, we couldn't make the transition to the soft cedar, you know, like the Massey Hall or or s smaller venues of that nature. It just wasn't in the cards. And pe I think people came to came out to see the the novelty act that was once the Beatles or something. And then, oh yeah, I, I'd seen them, and they didn't need to come back and see it again. Although I must confess, there are some fans who are quite rabid to this day. And, uh, you know, love all things Klaatu. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of cool. But, you know, they're, they're a small, dedicated, devoted bunch. So there's never been any other talk of getting back together? We actually did a reunion in 2005. We were with Bullseye Records. Jamie Vernon set up this uh, um, meet and greet called Klaatu-Con at the Doubletree Hilton out by the airport. Right. And uh, a couple of weeks before it happened, I said to John and Dee, listen, here we are. We're going to go and do this meet and greet and shake hands and get our pictures taken. I, I think we should play some songs for them. Let's sit around with three acoustic guitars, pick a half a dozen songs that we can put across, and let's do it. And both Dee and John and I, much to my surprise, said, yeah, let's do that. So the next day I get a call from John. He says, uh, you know, Terry, we're going to play All Good Things. It's got that little organy solo in the middle. Do you have a keyboard? <laughs> I said, yeah, I got a keyboard. And then Dee called the next day. He said, you know, Terry, we're going to do Sherry, and that violin line is so important. Do you have a keyboard? And so the next thing you know, um, Dee was playing his Strat. John was playing an acoustic guitar. I had a bass drum, hi-hat, tambourine, and two keyboards set up. And uh, we hired a friend of uh, Jamie Vernon's uh, uh, sister-in-law, uh, Maureen, Maureen Leeson, to sing some of the background vocals because uh, we, we couldn't get up there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had two rehearsals, one with Maureen. And then that Saturday afternoon, we played a half a dozen songs for a few hundred very appreciative per people. We multi-tracked it and had three cameras running. And uh, we put the, the music out on a CD eventually called Solology, the six-song recital. And it turned out quite good, actually. We, we played uh, some rather complex music, and the three of us put it across, the four of us, I should say, put it across quite well. And so that was a nice afternoon. What, what's, what is uh, the relationship between the band members? What is that like after going through something like what you've gone through, which nobody else could possibly understand? Well, um, it's, uh, it, you know, it's a lot of water under the bridge. Right. And it's like a marriage, only there's three people involved. 
So, uh, but now it's it's a full blown divorce. Mm. But I mean, there's you know there's uh, there's there's chat that goes on and conversation. But uh, D lives on the, on the other side of the country in BC, and John's down in High Park, and uh, I don't really see them or talk to them at all. Hmm. Which is not that unusual because people no, move I on. No, li- yeah, lives change. The yeah. marriage is over. But but you did also have them on your solo albums afterwards, right? Like I mean, it's not. Like- yeah, on the first uh, first couple, I think. Uh, yeah, they they played uh, sporadically here and there, not very much. But I asked uh, John to sing a song once, and he declined. So, but uh, yeah, I w- I wonder. When when these things the things fell apart with the record label and you said you had to leave the business for a while, what got you back into music? I never left music. I just left the music business. So uh, you were still writing. A, oh yeah, every day writing and recording, and I I got my roofing business up and running and dedicated uh, my energy to it. And because uh, unlike the, the previous years, I wanted to have a, you know, a, a home and, and a family, see the world. And that wasn't going to happen with the, the money I w- that was coming in from being in a band. Um, construction is, is, uh, is, is, is quite, quite beneficial financially. Right. And so I, ha- I did all the things that you don't get to do. You know, I got married and built a house and had children and, uh, and life is good. And I never stopped making music. I have uh, had an eight-track tape deck and a mixing board and guitars and keyboards. And then the uh, the computer came along um, uh, with software that you could stripe one of the tracks on your tape and coordinate it with the computer and record MIDI music to it. Not not music, but information that the 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 computer would play back on that instrument. So it was like really cool. All of us. I bought my first uh, computer was an Apple III, mm-hmm. long time ago. So I've been working with this technology since its infancy, and it's it's come a long way. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, how do you view music now? I don't. I don't. I don't listen to music. Um, Sorry, but know, it, just m- even your own stuff. Like how do you, how do you look at music, making music at this point? Um, I, I wait for inspiration, you know. Often I'll sit down and uh, at the piano and I'm just playing around and, oh, that's a nice chord progression. I write it down and get a melody for it and and it tends to sit there and, and then pieces of paper like that pile up and eventually they end up in the trash. The ones that get turned into recordings and, and get released are, are things that inspire me. Um, I have a, a new one I've just finished. I, I was watching a, a documentary on uh, Queen Victoria, and uh, it was really nice. It was really interesting. And so I wrote this song called The Sun Never Sets on the British Empire. And, and I have this madrigal music playing with a, a fellow a, a friend of mine. I got to recite the uh, the the verses um, in in a very British voice. Uh, back in 1901 when she breathed her last breath, that kind of stuff. Right. And then the band comes in in the chorus and it sounds like the Hollies singing The Sun Never Set. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's just Richard Burton meets the Hollies is what I, what I was trying to do. And it turned out great and uh, I was inspired. And uh, I just ha- had a lot of fun doing it. The verses themselves are a very British madrigal, uh, medieval flute and lute sound with harp 
And then the rock band comes in, kind of like the Kinks, well-respected man kind of thing. And this, so I already told you about the the Sultan's dream. Mm -hmm. I I just get inspired, things come along, you know. I was watching a couple of years ago, I was watching the... uh, the uh, the video of the rover on Mars, and, and they they said it was the first sunset on Mars, and I thought, how cool is that? And and, and sat down and wrote "Sunset on Mars," which is a song about uh, about uh, leaving Earth because we've ruined it and having the last sunset on Earth, and now we're at Mars, holding the first sunset on Mars. How many sunsets will there be before it's the last sunset on Mars? I, pres- I presume that science fiction is part of your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anywhere but here is one of my mottos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Uh, it's been fun. Um, it's been interesting. My final question to you. What's the greatest thing you've learned from your, your musical life? Boy, oh boy. Um, that's a curveball. <laughs> but you've had an interesting uh, journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, at this point in time, I would have to say it's sharing. Uh, the whole sharing of music. Although I'm not a fan of Spotify and streaming, I, I let my music be on those uh, platforms just so that other people can hear it. And whether they like it or not remains to be seen. And I frankly don't care, but uh, it's it's just the sharing of it. I I I I've always thought that music was a two-way street, and in fact, uh, the first song on my first solo album is called "We're Not Alone," and uh, the, the bridge goes. Um, the lyric is, uh, "Imagine all the painters and the poets overlooked, if no one saw the showing and no one read the books. Oh, reception is the heart of art. It must be shared by two. No, it don't mean a thing without you. Hmm. Very nice. And I guess I, I guess that's sort of, you know, it took me a long time to get here to the point where it's all about the sharing. You know, it used to be about making a living and, and being on the radio and all that stuff. But, you know, that was in my youth. And, and uh, I guess I mellowed out a little bit, Michael. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing journey. And, and you know, but, I, you know, the accomplishments... Um, that you, you've had and, and, and I was talking to Kim Mitchell recently about his induction to the Songwriters Hall of Fame I mean I think that is something that's pretty special I mean even he said that you know you, you know when you sell enough records you get nominated for certain things but to be elected into something like the Songwriters Hall of Fame is something different because it's totally unexpected that's true so it's, it's an amazing accomplishment thank you so much for spending an hour with me and talking about your life it's been fascinating well thank you for having me on uh, I've uh, looked at your website and your other uh, hosts and guests and uh, I'm in good company <laughs> well you deserve to be there thank you so much thanks Michael ciao